0: lecture six part one of pragmatism this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Frederick Carlson. pragmatism by william james lecture six when clerk maxwell was a child it is written that he had a mania for having everything explained to him and that when people put him off with vague verbal accounts of any phenomenon he would interrupt them impatiently by saying Yes, but I want you to tell me the particular go of it. Had his question been about truth, only a pragmatist could have told him the particular go of it. I believe that our contemporary pragmatists, especially Messrs. Schiller and Dewey, have given the only tenable account of this subject. It is a very ticklish subject, sending subtle rootlets into all kinds of crannies and hard to treat in the sketchy way that alone befits a public lecture. But the Schiller-Dewey view of truth has been so ferociously attacked by rationalistic philosophers and so abominably misunderstood that here, if anywhere, is the point where a clear and simple statement should be made. I fully expect to see the pragmatist view of truth run through the classic stages of a theory's career. First, you know, a new theory is attacked as absurd. Then it is admitted to be true, but obvious and insignificant. Finally, it is seen to be so important that its adversaries claim that they themselves discovered it. Our doctrine of truth is at present in the first of these three stages, with symptoms of the second stage having begun in certain quarters. I wish that this lecture might help it beyond the first stage in the eyes of many of you. Truth, as any dictionary will tell you, is a property of certain of our ideas. It means their agreement— as falsity means their disagreement with reality. Pragmatists and intellectualists both accept this definition as a matter of course. They begin to quarrel only after the question is raised as to what may precisely be meant by the term agreement, and what by the term reality, when reality is taken as something for our ideas to agree with. In answering these questions, the pragmatists are more analytic and painstaking, the intellectualists more offhand and irreflective. The popular notion is that a true idea must copy its reality. Like other popular views, this one follows the analogy of the most usual experience. Our true ideas of sensible things do indeed copy them, shut our eyes and think of yonder clock on the wall and you get just such a true picture or copy of its dial but your idea of its works unless you are a clockmaker is much less of a copy yet it passes muster for it in no way clashes with the reality even though it should shrink to the mere word works that word still serves you truly and when you speak of the time-keeping function of the clock, or of its spring's elasticity, it is hard to see exactly what our ideas can copy. You perceive that there is a problem here. Where our ideas cannot copy definitely their object, what does agreement with that object mean? Some idealists seem to say that they are true whenever they are what God means, that we ought to think about that object. Others hold the copy view all through and speak as if our ideas possessed truth just in proportion as they approach to being copies of the absolute's eternal way of thinking. These views, you see, invite pragmatistic discussion, but the great assumption of the intellectualists is that truth means essentially an inert static relation, when you've got our true idea of anything there is an end of the matter you're in possession you know you have fulfilled your thinking destiny you are where you ought to be mentally you have obeyed your categorical imperative and nothing more need follow on that climax of our rational destiny epistemologically you are in stable equilibrium pragmatism on the other hand asks its usual question. Grant an idea or belief to be true, it says. What concrete difference will its being true make in anyone's actual life? How will the truth be realized? What experiences will be different from those which would obtain if the belief were false? What, in short, is the truth's cash value in experiential terms? The moment pragmatism asks this question, it sees the answer. True ideas are those that we can assimilate, validate, corroborate and verify. False ideas are those that we cannot. That is the practical difference it makes to us to have true ideas, that, therefore, is the meaning of truth, for it is all that truth is known as. This thesis is what I have to defend. The truth of an idea is not a stagnant property inherent in it. Truth happens to an idea. It becomes true, is made true by events. Its verity is in fact an event, a process. The process namely of its verifying itself, its verification. Its validity is the process of its validation. But what do the words verification and validation themselves pragmatically mean? They again signify certain practical consequences of the verified and validated idea. It is hard to find any one phrase that characterizes these consequences better than the ordinary agreement formula. Just such consequences being what we have in mind whenever we say that our ideas agree with reality. They lead us, namely, through the acts and other ideas which they instigate, into or up to or towards, other parts of experience with which we feel all the while, such feeling, being among our potentialities, that the original ideas remain in agreement. The connections and transitions come to us from point to point as being progressive, harmonious, satisfactory. This function of agreeable leading is what we mean by an idea's verification. Such an account is vague, and it sounds at first quite trivial, but it has results which it will take the rest of my hour to explain. Let me begin by reminding you of the fact that the possession of true thoughts means everywhere the possession of invaluable instruments of action, and that our duty to gain truth, so far from being a blank command from out of the blue or a stunt self-imposed by our intellect, can account for itself by excellent practical reasons. The importance to human life of having true beliefs about matters of fact is a thing too notorious. We live in a world of realities that can be infinitely useful or infinitely harmful. Ideas that Tell us which of them to expect count as the true ideas in all this primary sphere of verification and the pursuit of such ideas is a primary human duty the possession of truth so far from being here an end in itself is only a preliminary means towards other vital satisfactions if i am lost in the woods and starved and find what looks like a cow path it is of the utmost importance that I should think of a human habitation at the end of it, for if I do so, and follow it, I save myself. The true thought is useful here, because the house, which is its object, is useful. The practical value of true ideas is thus primarily derived from the practical importance of their objects to us their objects are indeed not important at all times i may on other occasions have no use for the house and then my idea of it however verifiable will be practically irrelevant and had better remain latent yet since almost any object may some day become temporarily important the advantage of having a general stock of extra truths, of ideas that shall be true of merely possible situations, is obvious. We store such extra truths away in our memories, and with the overflow we fill our books of reference. Whenever such an extra truth becomes practically relevant to one of our emergencies, it passes from cold storage to do work in the world, and our belief in it grows active. You can say of it, then, either that it is useful because it is true, or that it is true because it is useful. Both these phrases mean exactly the same thing, namely that there is an idea that gets fulfilled and can be verified. True is the name for whatever idea starts the verification process. Useful is the name for its completed function in experience. True ideas would never have been singled out as such would never have acquired a class name least of all a name suggesting value unless they had been useful from the outset in this way. From this simple cue pragmatism gets her general notion of truth as something essentially bound up with the way in which one moment in our experience may lead us towards other moments which it will be worthwhile to have been led to. Primarily, and on the common sense level, the truth of a state of mind means this function of a leading that is worthwhile. When a moment in our experience of any kind, whatever, inspires us with a thought that is true, that means that sooner or later we dip by that thought guidance into the particulars of experience again and make advantageous connection with them. This is a vague enough statement, but I beg you to retain it, for it is essential. Our experience, meanwhile, is all shut through with regularities. One bit of it can warn us to get ready for another bit, can intend, or be significant of, that remoter object. The object's advent is the significance's verification. Truth, in these cases, meaning nothing but eventual verification, is manifestly incompatible with waywardness on our part. Woe to him whose beliefs play fast and loose with the order which realities follow in his experience. They will lead him nowhere, or else make false connections." By realities, or objects, here, we mean either things of common sense, sensibly present, or else common sense relations, such as dates, places, distances, kinds, activities. Following our mental image of a house along the cow path, we actually come to see the house. We get the image's full verification. Such simply and fully verified leadings are certainly the originals and prototypes of the truth process. Experience offers, indeed, other forms of truth process, but they are all conceivable as being primary verifications arrested, multiplied, or substituted one for another. Take, for instance, yonder object on the wall. You and I consider it to be a clock, although no one of us has seen the hidden works that make it one. We let our notion pass for true without attempting to verify. If truths mean a verification process essentially, ought we then to call such unverified truths as this abortive? No, for they form the overwhelmingly large number of the truths we live by, Indirect as well as direct verifications pass muster. Where circumstantial evidence is sufficient, we can go without eye-witnessing. Just as we here assume Japan to exist without ever having been there, because it works to do so, everything we know conspiring with the belief and nothing interfering, so we assume that thing to be a clock. We use it as a clock regulating the length of our lecture by it. The verification of the assumption here means it's leading to no frustration or contradiction. Verifiability of wheels and weights and pendulum is as good as verification. For one truth process completed, there are a million in our lives that function in this state of nascency. They turn us towards direct verification, lead us into the surroundings of the objects they envisage. And then, if everything runs on harmoniously, we are so sure that verification is possible that we omit it, and are usually justified by all that happens. Truth lives, in fact, for the most part, on a credit system. Our thoughts and beliefs pass, so long as nothing challenges them, just as banknotes pass so long as nobody refuses them. But this all points to direct face-to-face verification somewhere, without which the fabric of truth collapses like a financial system with no cash basis whatever. You accept my verification of one thing, I yours of another. We trade on each other's truth but beliefs verified concretely by somebody are the posts of the whole superstructure. Another great reason, beside economy of time, for waiving complete verification in the usual business of life, is that all things exist in kinds and not singly. Our world is found once for all to have that peculiarity so that when we have once directly verified our ideas about one specimen of a kind we consider ourselves free to apply them to other specimens without verification a mind that habitually discerns the kind of thing before it and acts by the law of the kind immediately without pausing to verify will be a true mind in ninety-nine out of a hundred emergencies proved so by its conduct fitting everything it meets, and getting no refutation. Indirectly, or only potentially verifying processes may thus be true as well as full verification processes. They work as true processes would work, give us the same advantages and claim our recognition for the same reasons. All this on the common sense level of matters of fact which we are alone considering. But matters of fact are not our only stock in trade. Relations among purely mental ideas form another sphere where true and false beliefs obtain, and here the beliefs are absolute or unconditional. When they are true, they bear the name either of definitions or of principles. It is either a principle or a definition that one and one make two that two and two make three, and so on, that white differs less from grey than it does from black, that when the cause begins to act the effect also commences. Such propositions hold of all possible ones, of all conceivable whites and greys and causes, the objects here are mental objects. Their relations are perceptually obvious at a glance, and no sense verification is necessary. Moreover, once true, always true, of those same mental objects, truth here is an eternal character. If you can find a concrete thing anywhere that is one, or white, or gray, or an effect, then our principles will everlastingly apply to it it is but a case of ascertaining the kind and then applying the law of its kind to the particular object you are sure to get truth if you can but name the kind rightly for your mental relations hold good of everything of that kind without exception if you then nevertheless fail to get truth concretely you would say that you had classed your real objects wrongly in this realm of mental relations Truth again is an affair of leading. We relate one abstract idea with another, framing in the end great systems of logical and mathematical truth under the respective terms of which the sensible facts of experience eventually arranges themselves, so that our eternal truths hold good of realities also. This marriage of fact and theory is endlessly fertile. What we say here is already true in advance of special verification, if we have subsumed our objects, rightly. Our ready-made, ideal framework for all sorts of possible objects follows from the very structure of our thinking. We can no more play fast and loose with these abstract relations than we can do so with our sense-experiences. They coerce us. We must treat them consistently, whether or not we like the results. The rules of addition apply to our depths as rigorously as to our assets. The hundredth decimal of pi, the ratio of the circumference to its diameter, is predetermined ideally now, though no one may have computed it. If we should ever need the figure in our dealings with an actual circle, we should need to have it given rightly, calculated by the usual rules, for it is the same kind of truth that those rules elsewhere calculate. Between the coercions of the sensible order and those of the ideal order, our mind is thus wedged tightly. Our ideas must agree with realities, be such realities concrete or abstract, be they facts or be they principles, under penalty of endless inconsistency and frustration. So far intellectualists can raise no protest. They can only say that we have barely touched the skin of the matter realities mean then either concrete facts or abstract kinds of things and relations perceived intuitively between them they furthermore and thirdly mean as things that new ideas of ours must no less take account of the whole body of other truths already in our possession but what now does agreement with such threefold realities mean to use again the definition that is current here it is that pragmatism and intellectualism begin to part company primarily no doubt to agree means to copy but we saw that the mere word clock would do instead of a mental picture of its works and that of many realities our ideas can only be symbols and not copies past time power Spontaneity. How can our mind copy such realities? To agree in the widest sense with a reality can only mean to be guided either straight up to it or into its surroundings, or to be put into such workings touch with it as to handle either it or something connected with it better than if we disagreed. Better either intellectually or practically. And often agreement will only mean the negative fact that nothing contradictory from the quarter of that reality comes to interfere with the way in which our ideas guide us elsewhere. To copy a reality is, indeed, one very important way of agreeing with it, but it is far from being essential. The essential thing is the process of being guided. Any idea that helps us to deal, whether practically or intellectually, with either the reality or its belongings that doesn't entangle our progress in frustrations, that fits, in fact, and adapts our life to the reality's whole setting, will agree sufficiently to meet the requirement it will hold true of that reality. Thus, names are just as true or false as definite mental pictures are. They set up similar verification processes and lead to fully equivalent practical results. All human thinking gets discursified. We exchange ideas, we lend and borrow verifications, get them from one another by means of social intercourse. All truth thus gets verbally built out, stored up, and made available for everyone. Hence we must talk consistently just as we must think consistently, for both in talk and thought we deal with kinds. Names are arbitrary, but once understood they must be kept to. We mustn't now call Abel kine or kine Abel if we do we ungear ourselves from the whole book of genesis and from all its connections with the universe of speech and fact down to the present time we throw ourselves out of whatever truth that entire system of speech and fact may embody the overwhelming majority of our true ideas admit of no direct or face-to-face verification, those of past history, for example, as of Cain and Abel. The stream of time can be remounted only verbally or verified indirectly by the present prolongations or effects of what the past harbored. Yet, if they agree with these verbalities and effects, we can know that our ideas of the past are true. As true as past time itself was, so true was Julius Caesar, so true were antediluvian monsters, all in their proper dates and settings. That past time itself was, is guaranteed by its coherence with everything that's present. True as the present is, the past was also. Agreement thus turns out to be essentially an affair of leading, leading that is useful because it is into quarters that contain objects that are important. True ideas lead us into useful verbal and conceptual quarters as well as directly up to useful sensible termini. They lead to consistency, stability and flowing human intercourse, they lead away from eccentricity and isolation, from foiled and barren thinking. The untrammeled flowing of the leading process, its general freedom from clash and contradiction, passes for its indirect verification, but all roads lead to Rome, and in the end and eventually all true processes must lead to the face of directly verifying sensible experiences somewhere, which somebody's ideas have copied such is the large loose way in which the pragmatist interprets the word agreement he treats it altogether practically he lets it cover any process of conduction from a present idea to a future terminus provided only it run prosperously it is only thus that scientific ideas flying as they do beyond common sense can be said to agree with the realities it is, as I have already said, as if reality were made of ether, atoms, or electrons. But we mustn't think so, literally. The term energy doesn't even pretend to stand for anything objective. It is only a way of measuring the surface of phenomena so as to string their changes on a simple formula. End of Lecture 6 Part 1